Welcome to the Uppity Women podcast. Today we are talking to Angie Maxwell. She and Todd Shields have published The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. So Angie will talk about her, her background, so I'll let you listen to that. I won't repeat it here. But I will tell you that I think that we tend to look at our politics, our current politics, and the division, the vitriol, the fear-based tactics and messaging, and think that this is all just something that is happening right now. And it is not in a vacuum. Anyone who knows me and probably who listens to this, I'm liberal. I am feeling very distressed about everything right now. And I hope it doesn't get worse, but I predict that it will. And it could be really hard to take a look at history to figure out how we got to where we are today. But I think it's something that we have to do. And I think that we are in serious trouble. I don't think we try to solve problems anymore. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush here. I know there are lots of people who are working very hard to solve problems. But I struggle to come up with examples of how groups with different ideas are trying to do that together. And maybe it's never been that way. Maybe what I imagine is a utopia that will never exist, but I just don't think so. It was hard to read this book because it's proof of what I've known all along. And that is just this concerted effort to sacrifice values to win. And I know not everyone shares the same values as we would define them individually, but I think that there's some basic human decency that's missing in a lot of our policies, our arguments, our elections. And Angie in this book, Angie and Todd, they look at race, religion, feminism, and as a feminist who just wants the same opportunities as men get, it is really really painful to see where the progress really got um, slowed down. And that was with Reagan's campaign in 79-80. So anyway, I guess I would like to start this off more hopefully, but I'm feeling very dismayed. I make the mistake of reading the news every day and I should just stop that for a minute and take care of myself instead, but I don't. Anyway, I I want you all to get this book and read it and listen to what she says with an open mind. And again, I understand that I'm biased, and so I come at it from a bias, and I appreciate it from a bias. So I get that totally. But I think that there's a lot to talk about here, and I think there's a lot that we can all admit to ourselves and recognize, and maybe we can make some changes, or at least change the way we think and the way we vote to make this world a better place for more people. I think we can do that. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy the episode. Buy the book. uh, Support your local authors buy directly from the press. Don't get it on Amazon. We want our authors and our historians and all of our creators to be able to afford to carry on their good work and we've got to pay them for it. So and I say that as a broke person, so I get it, but trying to do my best to support these folks. Anyway, thank you. I'm Angie Maxwell and I grew up in Winfield, Louisiana, which is North Central. And then my family moved to Baton Rouge, graduated from high school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Came to the University of Arkansas as an undergrad for college and then got my PhD at UT Austin and then was hired back at the U of A where I'm currently 
I hold the Diane Blair Endowed Chair in Southern Studies, and I'm Associate Professor of Political Science, and I run the Blair Center for Southern Politics and Society, a research center. Well, what what was your um, interest in history, political science? What got you into this? Well, that's a good question. So I was actually a Middle East Studies and International Relations, like, undergrad, mm-hmm. and, like, studied abroad, and then, you know, in Morocco, and became fluent in Arabic, like, like thought I was doing that. And then my senior year, I wrote a thesis on J. William Fulbright's Middle East Peace Plan, which is still a phenomenal plan that was introduced in the 70s. And, and then when I was in the archives and special collections, I saw all these letters from Arkansans. And it just made me start thinking about public opinion, perception, the relationship between the constituents and, like, what's happening at the national level, all of that. I just got interested. Ended up going to do my PhD in American studies, which is basically interdisciplinary. It's like people who cannot decide. Mm -hmm. I focused on American history, American politics, American literature in the South. Those Those are my specialties. And then... Got a new wrinkle thrown in when I got the job because even though it was a Southern Studies endowed position, it was housed in the political science department, so I had to get tenure in political science. Mm. So even though I knew political history, I'm self-taught in statistics and quantitative work, which has become an amazing uh, opportunity because bridging quantitative work, like social science and humanities, is just not done very Mm -hmm. often. When it's bad, it's the worst. But when it's good, it's gold. Mm-hmm. Because it, it they inform each other so much. You ask better questions over here. You have better context. It's just, it's just hard to do. And you have to not care about breaking the discipline, you know, boundaries and rules and whatever. And you can do that at an institution and a research center that will let you. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm so lucky that the Blair Center is this well-funded, you know, interdisciplinary research center because that's where this kind of work can happen, you know. When was the center uh, created? I think its official date is 2001. So were you there when it was created? You came after it, right? I came after that. So it was originally found, the first director was Todd Shields, Mm -hmm. who Diane Blair was his mentor. So it was it was it was proposed when Diane Blair was sick, and when she died, it received you know it got a it was funded with the congressional one-time congressional appropriation that was put in an endowment, and then there were other people that added to that endowment, and then Todd became eventually the graduate school dean, and then Fulbright College dean, and then. I became the director. What's the mission of the center? The mission of the center is to do real research to uncover the problems of the region and solutions, right? So one one of the biggest things we do where we spend our money, it's research, where we spend our money is most polling in this country completely undersamples the South. It's a historic problem. 
it's hard to do and it's expensive to do. So most of what we know about political science, like overtime trends, comes out of one place, the American National Election Survey system out of Michigan, that data. And their southern samples are really small. And it, that's not their fault. It's not what their mission was. They're supposed to get a national sample. But if you're trying to f- look at what happened in the region, it's tough some years. So we decided that one of the things we would spend our resources on is to do a massive national poll with an oversample of the South, and particularly the rural South, mm-hmm. to be able to get the complexity. And so we got found we, the company that it's, works mostly for corporate America that is the best at, that outfits people in the rural South with the technology to be able to participate in things like this. Um, and so it has a huge rural sample, has a huge African-American sample, and a Latino sample inside the South, outside the South. And we're the only ones that do that. Mm-hmm. And so that gives us really accurate data and gets the full complexity of the region. So no more assumptions. Let's interrogate our assumptions. Let's understand the shades of gray. And we run it post-election right after the presidential election, which is considered more accurate, but also because we're not in the business of predicting elections or influencing elections. We're the we're the deep dive why, what happened and why, and throw out your preconceived ideas. You know, a lot of, a lot of Southern Studies work has been nostalgic mm-hmm. too often, and there's nothing wrong with that to a degree. Or like kind of romanticizing it or just like, you know, playing to its strengths, which, you know, I appreciate. But the region has some really serious problems that are distinct or at least in their degree are more extreme here. And we we just we have to we have to look at it. Well, what are a few of the problems you would name as being uh, more exacerbated in the South. One-party politics is a huge problem. It was a problem that V.O. Key, who wrote the book Southern Politics and State and Nation in 1949, which is the book that launches like Southern politics as a field, right? Before then, if you read a book about American politics, there would usually be, not literally, but some kind of little footnote or asterisk that said, in terms of the trends in political behavior, this does not apply to the states of the former Confederacy. It was basically like, we don't know what's going on down there. Like, they just always do this as a block. Like, we're not even studying them. It's also, we're going to say everybody else. And so B.O. Key gets a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation and goes through the whole South and writes this giant book. But one of the things he says in what is a very short introduction to such a big book and a powerful introduction is he says, one-party politics creates a droll facade, a politics of entertainment. So when it's not a contest of ideas, it's just personalities. Right. Who will be bigger? Who will be louder? Who will be more dramatic? Who will pull more stuff? It becomes tent revival, entertainment, circus kind of politics because it loses its purpose. And that, as fun as that could be and entertaining could be, particularly in rural places, it has no apparatus to truly solve 
problems. There's no structure underneath it that can actually address problems, which is what government is supposed to be, right? Right? Able to do, and politics is supposed to give us choice in that. But if it's just personality politics, it becomes very much demagoguery and kind of like party boss like and there's not a system it's just who's friends with who and different things like that and that doesn't set us up a way to really address you know the needs of the community who is benefiting from the the one party well right now the, I mean right now the Republican Party benefits from it but not just the party is it is it the wealthy is it the sure. landowners I mean like who who is it who's benefiting yeah I think it's absolutely the elites and the kind of people with power is who benefits because they if it's a politics of entertainment you can convince someone to vote against their economic self-interest because you make them feel like you're one of them right and you connect with them emotionally and they won't ask what the plan is because they just believe that someone they connect with emotionally will of course help them Mm -hmm. someone that they think is like them is the best protector of whatever it is they want protected or need Mm -hmm. right but that sense of connection is campaign Mm -hmm. it's not governing not the same thing right right? agreed at all and so that's that grand bargain you know kind of I talk about some in in my work about the you know you make people feel like they're connected to you while you're picking their pockets Mm -hmm. both parties can do that they they absolutely can they have over history yeah it's not exclusive to one yeah and I'll and I'll mention now on on the record that I'm anyone who listens to this or knows me knows I'm liberal not a member of any party but I'm I'm definitely liberal so as we talk I'm going to probably come at it with with my liberal bias but but feel free to push back on anything I say or or anything like that Um, so getting back to Diane Blair we're at South on Main in downtown Little Rock right now and you're in town for what purpose well I nominated Diane Blair for the Arkansas Women's Hall of Fame last spring and she is being inducted posthumously tonight and her whole family will be here and gather and all of her old friends and people she worked with and I just I don't know something to this this past year I just started realizing I think because we're seeing more young women like elected to the legislature and I'm close you know have some that are friends and I see just how hard what a hard choice it is especially if you're raising a family at the same time and it made me think about Diane Blair debating Phyllis Schlafly on the House floor on the Equal Rights Amendment when she's like 32. Okay, I didn't know that she did this. Yes. She she wiped the floor with her. She debated her on the Valentine's Day 19... I'm going to get the date wrong. I think it's 1974. Okay. And um, there's pictures, but no, uh, no, there's no video. And... Roy Reed was doing an interview, an oral history with her for the Prior Center with Diane. And the very last recording he does before she passes away, they get right up into that date and then they take a break. And so we don't have her thoughts on it. But do she, we, is there she, a transcript? There is, I don't think, I don't know. Okay. There's been, there's been some, I think 
there's other people of like it was covered in the newspaper some so like there might have been quotes here and there but Diane Blair was on the you know first women's commission in Arkansas the whole IWI international year you know women's year and all of the conferences that were held all over the in every state about women finally trying to say what do we want for women the national conventions in Houston I mean Diane Blair was our person for the whole state like doing all of that and, and this was in the early 70s this is seven like I mean 77 you know uh, well I mean it's the whole seven I mean it's the ERA gets through Congress 72 71 and 72 and so it has a seven-year ratification window with a two-year extension so 72 to 81 women are working and they're meeting and they're organizing and they're like they're having these commissions and Diane Blair is running that for the state I mean it's a ton of labor it's so much labor and then at the same time she's got young children and then she becomes a faculty member at the university in political science and public like even with all that it's publishing like crazy she's helping run campaign I mean she's just she's setting up single parent scholarship fund the University of Arkansas Press League of Women Voters like the Arkansas advocates for children I mean just major institutions that do good work and I it makes me tired to like even look at her CV like when I was pulling her old resumes out of special collections to make to write the application I just couldn't believe it what a legacy it's hard to even process yeah and then that's not even just all the students lives she touched writing the big handbook of Arkansas politics which people still use and she's just a force you know and she deserves to be in there and I think about how hard it must have been like it's hard now Mm-hmm. So imagine then. Oh, I, I can't. I can't. Yeah. Someone who grew up in D.C., went to Cornell, moves here, and does this. It's something. And loves this place. Loves this state. Yeah. You know. And uh, she was married? She was. She was married to Hugh Kincaid. She was married twice. She was married to Hugh Kincaid, who she met in D.C., became a state representative here. And that's what brought her to Arkansas. And then, then she married Jim Blair, who, you know, was an attorney for Tyson, different folks mm-hmm. in that crowd. And but her, the real interesting thing about her is when she was on campus teaching, there was it was basically like three women professors, you know, kind of. I'm sure there was a little bit more than three, but three. Anne Henry, Diane Blair, Hillary Clinton at the law school. And they kind of, like, helped each other, had lunch, had each other's backs a little bit. And, like, and then we're like, who should run for city council? You know, just kind of quietly negotiating that world and trying to make a difference and make an impact. And so when Jim and Diane married, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were the best man and best woman at their wedding. So they, they became real close, mm-hmm. you know, friends. Um, and then Diane took leaves of absence to go on the campaigns, Clinton's mm-hmm. campaigns. When did she die? 2000. I remember hearing about it when she died, but this was early in my, my tenure in Arkansas. Yeah, she's a big deal. She like, is, yeah. Asa loves, like, she taught everybody. Right. So, like, she's got, she's beloved by students and former students across every ideological spectrum in this state because she was, you know, all opinions were welcome in your classroom. Right. I mean, that's her philosophy. She'd help any student, you know, which is how I feel. I write letters for students for every internship they want for all, all across Republicans, Democrats, independents, like, and so she was just respected, you know. Yep. And, and she was a problem solver. So she was a she was a go getter, do the work, do the labor. Yeah. She did the work, you know. She absolutely did the work. It wasn't just ideas. She's like, let's put pen to paper. 
Um, yeah. She was grassroots in her approach. So you were here to accept her, her induction. No, Jim Blair will be accepting it. Oh, okay. I just nominated okay. her, so You're I'm not, just okay. here to watch. The okay. family will accept it. Okay. I need to find out more about her. I'm excited to learn You're more gonna, about her. Yeah. Her entire special collections at the U of A, she kept quote journals. She did the New York Times crossword puzzle with Bill Clinton. They mailed it back and forth to each other. Oh, wow. Like, everything. Like, she is... This is a pack rat. Yeah. Obsessed with history and politics yeah. who watches her closest friends go to the White House. It's... She's... It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And thank goodness. And her... And, and then all those files from do, what she did with the Women's Commission and what she was trying to do with the ERA. I mean, it's all... I mean, she kept everything. Pack mm-hmm. rat. Mm-hmm. You Good. know? Yes. And so, it's a portrait of a life, man. Something. So, let me... I'm going to jump to the book. Yes. Because I don't have all day with you, unfortunately. Um, although I have all the questions. So, uh, your book is The Long Southern Strategy. What comes after the colon? How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. Okay, yes. I told you before we started the recorder that it, reading the book, which I haven't finished yet, because I cannot... I'm telling you, I am highlighting almost every page. <laughs> so, so I, anyway, it, because there are just so it's many very things that dense. are striking. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I know. Well, but there's so much that I am like, what? Of course. You know, it just is really has been a learning and eye-opening experience. So, um, it gives me great anxiety because <laughs> I feel like the whole world is on fire and I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and I am also, I, I believe in solving problems no matter where the ideas come from. So, I've always believed, yeah. like, let's, let's just put them all together and let's figure this out but we don't see that happening in our politics at all right because it is like you just said it's a it's a competition of personality it's not a competition of ideas um, although we claim it is but you know I don't see anyone trying to figure out an actual immigration plan we're all we're talking about is the wall and right right and that might be part of a solution but we're not talking about anything else we're just on constant campaign mode constant we don't switch to governing right that's right yeah so all right so give me uh, basically the the gist of the book sure but I, well, but I, I, I do yeah, want to yeah. focus on the feminism I'll just keep I'll just keep it simple but most people have heard of like the southern strategy and I like to call it the short southern strategy and that is the notion that after the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964, that the Republican Party decided to try to break up what had been a solid Democratic South, where they'd seen a few cracks, but to really go all in and make that, trying to win over those voters as part of their electoral map strategy. Because they have those meetings, and they go, what should we, you know, where should we be focusing? What should we do? And in order, since there was such angst about the signing of the Civil Rights Act, they said it really played to that angst and this kind of politics of fear. The Republican Party's deeply divided on this. Two different candidates duke it out at the RNC convention, Barry Goldwater, Nelson Rockefeller, one pro-civil rights, one going, I didn't vote for it. And Barry Goldwater gets the nomination. So he goes on the stump throughout the South and plays to that the government should be doing this, right? And so do his surrogates, like Strom Thurmond, senator from South Carolina, who flips his party ID. Well, Goldwater wins five deep South states. This is a big deal. He wins 87% of the vote in Mississippi. 
That's insane. Wow. That's an insane flip. That's an unparalleled flip. And this is as a Republican. As a Republican. Yes. The, the, no Republican had won since Reconstruction when everyone else was disenfranchised for being former Confederates. Military occupation right. of the South. Right. Sure. So that, that none had won in like three elections. Right. But Goldwater only wins those five deep South states and his native Arizona. That's it. So so then it's, you know, like we do after election postmortems. You know, Republicans are going, that was not a good idea. And again, they duke it out. And in 1968, when Richard Nixon gets the nomination, they tweak it. George Wallace, segregationist governor of Alabama, also runs. And they decide he's going to get those hardliners. How do we appeal to like this angst over these changes and these fears without being so blatant and overt? Because yeah. then we'll just be competing with Wallace. And we can't, you can't outdo Wallace. And so Nixon uses this kind of coded language and transforms kind of the racial politics into you know government shouldn't get too involved and the war on drugs and mass incarceration of African Americans, the law and order, which just kind of is code for, let's just stop all of this protesting. Like, we're done. Like, we had the Civil Rights Movement, got the Civil Rights Act, got the Voting Rights Act, now we're done. Like, let's just stop, right? Let's halt things where they are. Conserve the status quo, conservative. And this is radically different from the campaign Nixon ran in 1960 when he lost to JFK. Right. He runs a pro-civil rights campaign. His commercials talking about equality and everything. I mean, it's a huge about base. Right. Um, and he plays it just enough. So Nixon wins. He does the same thing in 72. And then what we say at that point, short Southern strategy, the GOP flips the South from blue to red. And let me, before Except we go on, are we, talking, are we talking the South from Texas to Florida? Yeah. I'm talking, I mean, we're talking the 13th, the 11 states of the former Confederacy. Okay. Though I know there's peripheral and all that stuff too. Okay. But in terms of trying to do a definition, that's what we're saying. Okay. So, so and then that's the story. Mm-hmm. That, that's the story we tell. Except... In 1976, the whole South goes back to Democrat Party under Jimmy Carter. Right. And then it goes back Republican to Reagan. Then about half the South goes back to Bill Clinton. And so it's kind of a two steps forward, one step back kind of process Mm -hmm. by which the South realigns with the Republican Party. And that makes you go, what else do they do? Like, how else do they do Mm -hmm. it? Like, I get the... Goldwater goes too far over. Nixon makes it coded, and more people are comfortable with that and okay with that. But then, like, how did they get him back after Jimmy Carter? Like, mm-hmm. That made me curious. And trying to figure out, like, that is not the story we tell. Mm-hmm. Then you realize it's not that they made, it's not that the GOP made a decision about how to force the South. It's that they made a series of decisions. And at a bunch of different forks in the road, they went right. Mm-hmm. Against the wishes of a lot of people in their party. And not only did they do that, but they didn't just, like, go campaign in the South. They really kind of became Southern. They, they really adopted a Southern style, which was this kind of us versus them um, demagoguery and big events and the constant campaign. 
the accusations of media bias, like just the, just all of that, that that style and that tone, um, and that's a fallout too of this whole process. Mm-hmm. They nationalize kind of white Southern identity, the not good parts, right? Because there are good parts, but not good parts, right? And that changes America. Can you win a presidential election without the South? Yeah, Barack Obama did it. I mean, he won Southern states, but he didn't need them, right? So there are basically three components you discuss. Religion, race, and feminism. Is that right. accurate? That's right. So okay. it's like, here's what the... I mean, the race, the racial story is the story we tell. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of, we truncate it, like, prematurely. We go, oh, okay, and that's what happened. Instead of seeing all the ways it continues right. to be used and manifest, right? Right. And so when people, like... They keep saying, oh, the new, it's back. It, it never went away. It just, mm-hmm. it's not about necessarily busing or war on drugs. It takes other forms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They constantly adapt that dog whistle, fine tune it. And we have to see that continuation. But then that alone is not enough. In 1976, when Jimmy Carter wins the South back, it really let, it, I mean, it puts the Republicans at like a crossroads. Mm-hmm. What are they going to do? And there's a lot of debate. One of the things they watch happening during that time is that the Equal Rights Amendment is, you know, organizing feminists and women all across the country, but also an anti-feminist movement started by Phyllis Schlafly out of St. Louis. And, is, and to be clear, it was the movement was was still, was also popular in the South initially, right? Oh, yes. So I don't know how much if there was a movement in the South, but what the Equal Rights Amendment passed through Congress, sailed through. Like, I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but it's like 380 votes to like 24 in the in the House and like 90-something percent, you know, in the Senate. It's got to get, you know, in terms of ratification, like 30 states ratify it in the first year. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, I mean, it seems like it's inevitable. It's mm-hmm. like snowballing. And then... Philosophically starts the anti-feminist, you know, kind of movement. She re-portrays feminism not as choice, but as a mandate that is going to take away women's special status and protected status and make them make them work, make them serve on the front lines of combat, make them put their babies in government daycare, and just changes the whole momentum. I mean, she just like abruptly kills the momentum of the ERA because that really hits particularly Southern white women hard. Well, who, sh- who was she? Like, Shockley? I mean, I know who she was, but like, what was her background that made her this force in the anti-feminist movement? Did she have a history of organizing or, or anything? She wrote a book in 1964 called A Choice. She's a mother of six, Catholic. She ends up running for office. She, um, she wrote a book in 1964 called A Choice Not an Echo. And she told Republicans, like, you are running candidates who are just Democrats light, basically. Right. You're just echoes of the same thing. Right. And you've got to give the American people a real choice. You've got to be distinct. Barry Goldwater adopts it as a slogan of his campaign. She mm-hmm. self-publishes it. Mm-hmm. So she kind of comes out of the blue like that. Thank you. Now, why she is what she is, that's a whole... Di- that's that's what I'm working on next. And okay. I'm not... I, I, I think I know, but I'm not ready to go there. Yeah, okay. But <clears throat> she is a force, and she taps into why that is so powerful in the South. Mm-hmm is because 
kind of our gender stereotypes or relationship was the ideal kind of southern white woman that was set up in antebellum times, which was like a woman is privileged, like put her up on a pedestal. She's frail, delicate, needs to be protected from threatening black males. She's taught to fear, right? Because that justifies white racial violence Mm -hmm. and turns it into like chivalry, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like what they have, what has to be done to protect these women. It gives them a faux justification. Well, even though that may not be exactly what it is all those decades later, it creates institutions by which women are really still out of the public sphere, still considered special, protected, not in the workforce unless you absolutely had to be financially, and that's a status problem, you know, like all of this. It creates that, and that has this kind of long legacy. So when Schlafly comes along, and her organization is called Stop Taking Our Privileges, Stop ERA. It's literally what it stands for. She goes, oh, you're going to have to give all this up. Mm -hmm. Our privilege of being um, taken care of financially, being a mother, having our homes, whatever... However, we identify being uh, and being out of public life, so yeah. it allows women to be morally passive, which is another thing. That's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Not an, it's an in, indirect, like unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. If you pull women out of that sphere, then things proliferate that they while they stay in a bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not a part of any conversation on policy. Correct. Right. Correct. So exactly right. So if Phyllis Schlafly stopped taps into that and women these these southern white women organize they show up at she holds a anti-feminist rally in Houston to counter the National Women's Conference mm-hmm. in 1977 20,000 people show up their slogan is family values the GOP sees this and goes those are the voters we need back mm-hmm. that we've lost in 76 to Carter how do we get these people Shafley is at the RNC convention in 1980, they work with her. Reagan's her candidate that she thinks, and she throws her support if they'll drop the ERA from their platform and instead put in an anti-abortion amendment to the Constitution, support for that. And would you say, is that the first time that abortion became sort of a political hot button? I mean, 76 and 80, it's a, 76, both, like, both Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter are both kind of... They both kind of say the same thing. They're, like, kind of personally against it, but they, like, don't know what the role of government should exactly be. They're kind of hedging. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, they're, like, and they're, they're like, pro-ERA, but then they, like, they don't want abortion to become, like, just, they're worried about the moral implications mm-hmm. of abortion just become, but it's been legalized the Supreme Court, so what can they say? They don't know what to do. Right. So they, they re, it's muddied. In 80 is when it gets, the parties take clear positions. Right. And that's under Reagan. And it is, and it's, they dropped the ERA after 40 years of support. Republican Party's first party to put it in. Tons of Republican feminists. 40 years. 40 years. They drop it after 40 years. Republican feminists were devastated. 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 They were some of the leaders of the movement. It was a totally bipartisan movement. Mm-hmm. They were devastated. Yeah. Have you read The Nine by Jeffrey Tubin? It's about the Supreme Court. I have not. I know of it, but I have not read it. There's a, a good discussion about the abortion issue. Um, 
as as it's been used by the Republicans over the last four decades. And I read this a decade ago, so but it, it definitely tracks with what you're saying. So ERA starts to lose support. Republicans are figuring out how they can get. Was the female vote courted before then? Not to the degree that it's courted after. I mean, what happens is that when Reagan wins in 1980, two really important statistics emerge. And they get misunderstood and conflated. They've mm-hmm. caused a lot of problems for us. Mm-hmm. Feminists that are devastated the morning after the 1980 election notice in the exit polling that something they're going to call the gender gap. Mm-hmm. Now, what the gender gap really is, because it gets misunderstood, was the fact that there were more women who voted for Jimmy Carter than men who voted for Jimmy Carter. It's an intra-party measure. Now, why do the feminists care about that? Because they are scared to death the Democrats are about to drop the ERA just like the Republicans did. Mm -hmm. And so they're using that to go, hey, guys, we're your base within the Democratic Party. You have, like, they want to get a woman on the ticket. They're scared about losing the ERA. They have two more years left. They've got to pass it in a certain number of states. They, like, they they don't want to admit that Reagan's mandate victory has anything to do with, like, people not supporting the ERA. They kind of will not process that. Mm -hmm. And they really play up this gender gap within the Democratic Party. Now, at the same time, the other statistic that gets takes on a life of its own after 19 is that more women voted overall in the election than men. It's just a little bit, but that had not happened since they'd been measured. The media conflates these two things and says, well, more women than men voted. There's a gender gap, you know, with women voting for Jimmy Carter and more women voted than ever. So what is your natural assumption when you hear that? Women must lean Democratic. Right. But you can have 30% of women vote for Jimmy Carter and 10% of men vote for Jimmy Carter and have a 20-point gender gap and everybody voted for Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. That's what they misunderstand. Right. They conflate the gender gap and the women's vote, right? right? And so when feminists are pushing that within the Democratic Party to main, you know, just to keep the party interested in all their beliefs, it just really gets misconstrued. It's not what they intended, but it, that's what happens. And so when when Democrats lose again in 84 with Geraldine Farrow on the ticket— mm-hmm. They don't realize that they lost a whole bunch of white women because Geraldine Farrow was on the ticket. They don't see that side of it, you know, that it created a backlash, right? That the, it wasn't a, the gender gap's not what mattered in 1980. It's the ERA gap. If you look at support for the ERA and who you voted for or people that opposed the ERA, it's like 50-point gaps. I mean, so the Republican Party took that position and it pulled them a whole bunch of white women, mm-hmm. particularly in the South. And people did not notice that. Like, did not... We didn't break polling down that way. We'd say women and men, and then we might do race, but we didn't do white women, black women. Like, we didn't mm-hmm. disaggregate the data, and they go Southern, not... We didn't do that. Right. We, did, we didn't do it. So it kind of wasn't seen. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying. So in 1980... Instead of looking at all the voters and what percentage of women were voting for whom, 
That would be called the women's vote. So okay. if you go, let's look at the women's vote. This percent voted for Clinton, this percent voted for Trump, this percent voted for Stein, wrote in, whatever. That's We're the women's vote. Right. But what they did was they, the, the women in the Democratic Party, they were just looking at the Democratic. And they were comparing the percent of women that voted for Carter minus the percent of men. They were trying to say, we're your bigger base. Right. We're your loyal people. Right. Like, you got to, like, don't, don't drop us. What should they have done? Well, I don't think there's anything, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them pushing that statistic within the party. I get that. But it ignores everyone else. But they did very much deny, I mean, Ellie Smeal, who's head of now at that time, was like, Reagan's, you know, victory was nothing about women. You know, she just like, this is the economy, this is the economy. They really, and I don't know if it was just too hard to process that not only would women hand the White House to the party that drops the ERA from its platform, but that they would, white women would do so because they dropped the ERA from their platform. Right. I don't know if that was just too hard to fathom after you've had such momentum leading up to the ERA and then it's like abruptly stopped and you're scrambling and you're like, come on. Or if it was just strategic by Smeal because she did not want the morale in those last two years to plummet. Mm -hmm. She's smart. So it was probably strategic. But I do think people just couldn't conceive of it. I have people now that like journalists and people talk to, they're like, wait, what? Right. So the Republican Party got Southern white women to vote for them by standing against the ERA, they just can't process that. And I'm right. like, yes. Right. But you have to understand how they pitched it. And you have to understand that white women have a different, that women are not all the same and that, you know, white women who are feminists and white women who are not are two entirely different demographics of people. I, I try not to argue on Facebook, but I got involved in the discussion about what it means to be a feminist which is a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah. And at one point I said, well, you can think of feminist um, for the fact that your husband can't rape you or that you can have a credit card or property. Right. And the response was, my husband would never rape anyone. I know. But Phyllis Hathaway co-ops it. She co-ops yes. it and says, it isn't choice. Mm-hmm. It is a mandate. Mm-hmm. It's a false equivalency that she sets right. up. Right. You know, it is. So is it is what happened in 1980... Is that analogous to what happened in 2016? I mean, I think there are commonalities, yes. So there's a series of questions called the Modern Sexism Scale. It's a psychology scale, and in 2012, I pulled five questions off of that scale that I thought were really relevant to politics, and I tested them in 2012's you know, national survey, and the numbers were off the charts. And there are things like, it's like a distrust of feminism, a resentment towards working women, women are trying to get power, just that. And when I ran them in 2016, of course, we have female candidates now that we can look and see the impact they have. Hillary Clinton, Jill Stein, all that. It's one of the most significant predictors of not voting. Even controlling for racial resentment and party ID and religiosity and income and all those kind of things. There is, this, and it's among women too, the, the sheer number of women, white women. Mm-hmm. Let me make that very clear. Right. White women that express that hostility. You do not see it among African-American right. women. You don't. Right. But if I remember the Latinx uh, it's internalized... A mis- it's yeah. a little more mixed. Yeah. But the um, that modern sexism is a is a holdover from that same anti-ERA sentiment, mm-hmm. right? That, like, 
distrust of feminism and this like resentment that you know the expectations for women are going to change right you know and like what does that look like and there's fear kind of underneath that and a female candidate who's clearly identified as a feminist Mm -hmm. you know hits that really hard to them Mm -hmm. you know and so in 2016 when we're figuring out you know coalitions and who's going to vote we're going well you know there are going to be some Republican women that cross over Instead of really going, what percentage of white women hold these attitudes and what percentage don't? Because it's mixed in every community and every state, and then you build your coalition based on that. Because the truth is, we don't have a gender gap. We have like a, your attitude about gender Mm -hmm. gap, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, if you think that and believe in these traditional gender roles, and that's what is right, and women are different, especially over here, and then if you believe... Everyone has equal opportunity, no matter what, you know, and you can choose whatever you want over here. And we have a whole lot of men over there, too, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. that second category. Right. That absolutely believe in in inequality and, like, it should be the same. Choose your own course and all of that. I think they get left on the table, you know, in a sense of when we're so appealing to women, like, monolithically. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, let's appeal to the people who believe in and, and push for and support women's equality and choices and the policies that allow them to have choices. And does that have to be an overt effort? Or do you have to sort of disguise it with other policy ideas? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it depends on the district that you're running in. So, like, if you're trying to win a state that's really conservative or you're trying to win a district that really leans, then what you want to do is... Because the thing is, is candidates who are pushing for that, they're fighting for all of those people. Mm-hmm. Because we're saying we want all the options open to you. We'll be able to do any of these things that you want to. And right now it may be that you really want to embody like some kind of traditional gender role. But in 10 years, circumstances might make you really need an opportunity here or path here or like equal pay here. Like they really are fighting for them. It's just... There is fear about those expectations changing among women, and they need to know, they need to hear that all the choices are valid, and we got to clear barriers for any of those choices. I mean, why do a lot of women choose to stay home? Because we don't have the, when they have children, because we don't have the institutional support mm-hmm. for them not to. It right. becomes too hard. Right. And then, but then you feel bad when you do that. There's a part of you that's lost. So then there's a community that comes in and really props that up and says it's best and it's morally superior or something. And that mm-hmm. kind of feels good because you already feel kind of bad. Like, it's just this trap and cycle. Yeah. Like, we have to talk about it with empathy. Right. And we have to play up. It's actually not play up. It's just the truth. Right. To take back what feminism really was, which is choice. And we want people to be completely knowledgeable of the choice they're making and be able to change their mind should they want to mm-hmm. and not have legal or financial or, you know, whatever obstacles to whichever path that they choose. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I think you can talk about it that way and talk about the women who choose to stay home and that is what they want and validate that. You know. It seems like it's also important to talk to men about choice. 
They should Absolutely. be they should be able to t- stay home with their kids too. You are 100% right. They should. 100% of course. Of course they should. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch and that's kind of sometimes what I mean too about feminist men mm-hmm. that we kind of believe out because there are a whole lot of men that believe in that too. Yeah. That book that like that like like think we should assess every couple and like what do you want to do and like support that want their wife to have these like aren't invested in some like I need to take care of her and like want to care want to be involved with their kids want to do right. equal work and equal do, you know they want that choice too mm-hmm. they want a choice of what role mm-hmm. they play and some of them like the traditional version some of them want it flipped and some of them want it like a good 50-50 and yeah. every shade of gray in between right but you have to believe in in every individual's right to choose that right and that is what feminism is right that is what it is that's right except when you demonize it and turn it into something it's not right I call it just wanting access to the same opportunities that's all I exactly want yeah and we fight for that even for the women who fight against it mm-hmm. knowing that we're fighting for their rights mm-hmm. too and mm-hmm. we're fighting for what they might need in the future and all of that mm-hmm. and the fear and the way it's been portrayed to them makes them feel devalued makes them feel like they're not good enough makes them feel like expectations are changing in a world in which they're not going to be able to live up and that um, that can cause a real emotional vote reaction Mm -hmm. it just can't and I have empathy for that I do yeah I do so after the 2016 election, um, I saw a lot of anger from women of color um, because white women voted for Trump in such high numbers. And as someone who did not and never would vote for Trump, that is not to say that I wouldn't vote for a Republican, but I certainly would never vote for Trump. And someone who tries to be woke and tries to be, mm-hmm. to do the right thing, how do... What do I need to be doing? I'm not sure exactly what my question is, but I want to say we are not a monolith. (laughs) I just think that, like... I feel defensive about that, their anger, which is not a... I mean, I'm just acknowledging that. I understand. I I try not to personalize it Mm -hmm. because overwhelming majority of Southern white women voted for Trump. By the way, Trump wins white... I mean, Hillary wins white women outside of the South. Right. Nobody breaks it up that way. Mm-hmm. But she does. She wins them. Mm-hmm. Inside the South is where she loses so big to Trump that when somebody just goes, let's look at the white women's vote nationally, it looks like it went Trump. But it only went Trump here. Right. Down here. Right. And that's important. But we don't talk about that. But anyway. Right. Um, but I think that I know... I know where I stand, so if they're... This is like a good political lesson. I talk to my students about this, actually. If I know that I am not one of the people they are talking about, mm-hmm. like I am not one of the white women Trump supporters, mm-hmm. but the majority are, then I'm not going to get offended by it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I'm like, you're right. The majority did. And that doesn't mean I, I don't have to like put my hand up and go, but I did. You're right. I did it. Because then that makes it about the individual and not about the group, you know. Right. And they're frustrated with that with the group. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like... We don't want to be indicted with that, but I'm not going to let myself be indicted with that emotionally because I know that that's not me. Right. Right? But I understand and respect the right 
to be frustrated. Oh my God, be so frustrated to vent about it, yes. to be angry about it. Yes. I can I can deal with that without self-directing it. Right. You know. And and to be clear, I'm not right. saying they shouldn't be angry or shouldn't express that. I just feel so helpless. I'm like, well, but I want to do better. I want to. Right. Right. So, I totally hear you. So I think the difference between when you said you felt defensive about it, mm-hmm. you felt helpless about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, don't get defensive. Helpless, I completely mm-hmm. get. And mm-hmm. I, I I get it. I think that one of the things is it's important for white women to call it out. For white women to say, like, you know what? White women, the majority of them are not allies to women of color. Mm-hmm. There's not. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes they think they are. Oh, yeah, they do. And they don't realize that they're not. Yep. And, and women of color have a right even for white women with the best of intentions who maybe are their allies they have a right not to trust that mm-hmm. they do I get that but the bigger lesson from women of color politically to me this is the one that drives me crazy from the 2016 election is that we get so attached to our personal candidate mm-hmm. our personal preference and I get it but like African American women have voted like 96% for Democratic nominees. Do we think that those nominees were all their personal favorite? Right. They were never their personal favorite. This is Troy Doug Jones is like their dream candidate in Alabama. Mm-hmm. No, they vote for the collective good. Mm-hmm. They put the needs of the group and like what's best for people above it. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing it for so long at such incredible levels, despite the party not often giving them enough credit or paying attention to their needs enough or any of those things. And when it's white male after white male after white male after white male after white male. So, the third party vote, the protest vote in 2016, that's hard to stomach Mm -hmm. for African-American women because they... They were the collective good, so all these white women who are like, ah, I didn't like either one of them. Mm-hmm. I get being pissed about that. I do. Yeah. And also that it's bigger than any one person. Right. It's about the party. And it's about not squabbling over minor, over, you know, these individual disagreements politically and focusing on the big picture mm-hmm. and kind of the collective good. Mm-hmm. And I just think that... When you see so many white white women who don't focus on what's good for women, it's right. just it's just like it's super frustrating, mm-hmm. you know, for them to see. But part of that is also our long term misunderstanding of white women being this monolithic block. Right, right. There have there are there's white women who believe in equal rights and there's white women who really don't mm-hmm. and the white women who do have more in common with women in color politically mm-hmm. than they do with the other white women who are kind of anti-feminist right they really do they're two completely separate entities and we have been our our are not seeing that starting in 1980 right kind of monolith sets expectations it sets expectations and then the disappointment and the hurt yeah. comes and it just it's like oh white women are allies no they're not they're two different groups of people mm-hmm. white women are feminists white women who aren't and they don't vote politically the same at all they don't have the same attitudes on anything mm-hmm. 
if they were two different ethnic groups, we'd go like, yes, okay, that's that group. That's how much, that, right. but we don't talk about it, so it sets an expectation, and it's like a letdown and a letdown and a letdown. Mm-hmm. That's part of what happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So let's say now we know all this, right? What do we do with this information? Okay, two questions. That, but my other question is, has there been a time in America's political history where there was a a true competition of ideas and it wasn't just this kind of vitriolic? Oh, yeah. I think it's been that way in the South Mm -hmm. because we've had one-party politics. Different parties, but we've had it, right? Nationwide, this is what's sad. So if you look at the Republican Party and Democratic Party's platform, in the 1950s. They almost completely match on civil rights. If you look at them in the early 70s, they almost completely match on the Equal Rights Amendment. We do not see this big, like, Christian nationalism Mm -hmm. until later in the 90s, like, from either party. And so, you know, those did not have to become polarizing issues. Like, you don't have to have one party pick pro-civil rights and one pick not. It could have just been, we're all for this. We have different disagreements about the best way to do it. You know, right? Where you're fighting, going. I think this is the best way. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like every it's like people agreeing that we need to do something about gun violence, and then this group is going. I really think that we need to do something with like an assault weapons ban, and this group is going. I really think we need red flag laws. Like, mm-hmm. and they're like, my red flag laws are going to help more than yours. They they could have fought over that mm-hmm. and all been moving in the same direction. Right, right. And same thing with equal rights, and like they could have been going. Well, what do we do about how do we find a balance about like women in combat? Like, what do we do? Like, how do we acknowledge that there might be some tasks that are like how we set up strength levels, irrespective of gender? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like they could have debated those things and not decided to just go whole claw. Right. And that existed in the party, and one group won out. That's a harder competition to win, too. It's so much simpler to narrow it to for or against. Mm -hmm. Well, and fear-based arguments. Absolutely. It's also, by the way, the same people involved with a lot of this stuff. So who runs runs Ronald Reagan's Southern campaign that starts off in Mississippi and plays to states' rights? Paul Manafort. Who makes the Willie Horton ad? That's Roger Ailes who founded Fox News. Like, it's been some of the same groups of people. And the problem is, is there are Republican candidates who do not want to deal with those, that group. Yeah. But they rather have them in the tent than out of the tent, but they try to kind of control it a little bit. So, like, you see the John McCain's, he won't go there. He won't, you know, on race and generally, he's like, right. he won't go there. And, and Mitt Romney a little, but he won't go there hard. Bob Dole, and what happens, they lose. Yeah. Now, they, that's, not the, that's not necessarily the reason they lose, but it, it creates this idea that you have to go that way to win. Right. Right? Right. You got to be a Reagan. Right. You got to be a Trump. So, here's my fear. This is what, like, I would say to people who are consider themselves Republicans, who want to win some good things back. I mean, this is a party that was coming up with an amnesty and immigration plan yeah. under, yeah, that was close. Right. I mean, it was a real debate. So, for people that are still in the party going, what happened, and want to get great back, if Trump wins in 2020, it will validate in your party the people who believe that's the way to win. Mm-hmm. 
if he doesn't, your, the whole GOP will sit down and go, what mistake did we make and what's our new plan? And that's your opportunity. If he wins, it's going to cement right. that this is how you do it. Right. And you're going to have to leave your party if you mm-hmm. care about this eventually. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to go, this is where they're going. They're going to, they're going to tell themselves that that's the path to victory. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't like the way they're going, I know it might be hard to pull for the other side, but you can pull one lever for the other side if it saves your party in the long run. Or I mean, the country. it's a long game, yes, or yeah. saves your country. But even at the self, if you're, like, self-interested mm-hmm. for, like, for saving the Republican Party or getting it back to some of the things you liked about it, even in that selfish, like, that's your self-interested motive, it would help you in the long run if Trump loses because that's what happens after a candidate loses. The party goes, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And look at the Democrat party now. What do we do mm-hmm. after Hillary loses? Yeah. If Trump wins again, it's going to enforce that that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard for you to get a John Kasich through or like someone you might like right. through your party. Right. You just have to think about that It's because this is so extreme. And it is so far from who you've nominated in 2012 and 2008. It's so far. So if you want to get back to those kind of folks, this guy winning is going to tell people that's how they do it. Mm-hmm. It will. And those strategists are powerful. I mean, they're good and at they what know they do. to get the endorsements. Like, yeah. who, who, who endorsed? Who's one of the very first people to endorse Trump into when he runs to Phyllis Schlafly? Mm-hmm. Who gives the eulogy at Phyllis Schlafly's funeral two months before the election? Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Did Donald Trump know Phyllis Schlafly? Who sets that up? Like, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the powers that be will, they think that's how you win. Mm-hmm. If they think that's going to make you lose, they'll abandon it. Right. Because winning is the thing. Right. They'll abandon it. Right. So just that that's an important thing to think about for those on the other, like, on the right, but not for this kind of sexism and Christian nationalism mm-hmm. and racism. Mm-hmm. You know, God. I thought Carl Rove was awful. <laughs> this is a whole nother level, and I think there are Republicans, up, you know, upset. I just, but you also see them falling into line. You do because they have to. You do, and you see, like, you know, people don't want to feel like they. People get defensive about who they voted for, mm-hmm. and I get that. I can be defensive about people I vote for. It'd be hard for me to believe somebody was bad. But Trump is not a Republican. Right. right. You know, it's like, take your party back. Mm -hmm. You know, that does not have to represent your party. Right. It really doesn't. Right. It really doesn't. And, like, I know there's a lot of people that thought he was, like, it was just all the rhetoric for TV and, like, during the campaign. He's not going to do any of this stuff. And, like, the office will, like, who gets serious about the office? Like, the office will overwhelm him almost to the point that he's, like, the grub. You know, the the seriousness of the yeah. job will hit something, and all. That. I get it, and that's kind of what you said, hoping and kind of voting for. Him. And that is a perfectly reasonable thing to think. Mm-hmm. But now you know, mm-hmm. so now that can't you can't think that. And it could have gone that way, but didn't. So you you made the choice you made when it was happening. But now there is no way to rationalize or justify. Right. There's just not. I mean, it was, it, for people who knew a lot about Trump, it was hard for people to see it even then. But I'm saying that, like, people have to be given permission to go, like, yeah. I kind of, like, farmers. Like, mm-hmm. I fell for it. I thought he was going to do this and this. He didn't. 
and how could they have known? So they need now to make that known. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a farmer in East Arkansas who's uh, related by marriage, and I heard that he voted for Trump, and I still have not had this conversation with him because I'm so appalled. But I want to have it now because I want to see. But Trump promised a whole lot of things yeah. to some of those people, and a lot of them. Yeah. And like he, they felt a connection to him, and that's mm-hmm. like deeper than they realize. And then they's promising all these things, and they think he's an outsider, and like if it's good not to have blow up the system, mm-hmm. like right. Yeah, to have any experience. I hear this that hasn't a lot. worked for me. Da-da-da. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they were they were right. It blew up the system. Mm-hmm. It's just he didn't blow it up and replace it with something that helped him. That's what you right. assume. When you assume it's going to blow up the system, you they're going to blow up the system, and then the new system is going to be better for you. Right. And I get that. It's a gamble. Right. He blew it up, and it's not better for them. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand why they wanted someone to blow it up, but this was the wrong person. Right. So now they just have to, now now you self-correct. Right. You go, that didn't work, go here. Give that, a, give somebody else a chance. Give another party a chance. Mm-hmm. Push hard on that party. Mm-hmm. If you're the if you're the group that switches, if farmers switch, Lord, the attention that farmers will get from mm-hmm. being the swing boat. Yeah. You know, I mean, you talk about some power. Everybody will be catering to the farmers, you know? So it's like... Self-correcting can actually empower groups, not not be some kind of like confession of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or some something to be ashamed of. Right. Another, it's not. I think kind of. Uh, I think we also think of farmers as these small family farms. Yeah. Most farms these days are corporate, big corporate entities, uh, and and uh, operations. So. Man, I don't I don't know how to end this. Uh, I guess I guess knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, and to remember that it's a long game, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of talent on the progressive side right now. Lots of great candidates. They're all flawed, but they're stepping up to run, fight hard for who you care about. Mm-hmm. But remember the big picture of like the people that you're fighting for. Mm-hmm. And continue to push your candidate. If it, the candidate that you think was best didn't get it, then why did you think they were best? Push whoever got it on that issue. Right. Because it's about that mm-hmm. more than it's about any one individual, you know? And it's a long game. Beto, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, they made huge inroads in those yeah. states. But it's not going to flip overnight. Right. You know? But right. that's okay. Like, have the courage to... Build a system, put in the labor, get involved, not just because political payoff immediate. Mm-hmm. It's not what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And, you know, a lot of the feminists, going back to 1980, a lot of the feminists kind of went underground after the, after Reagan won and the ERA went down and then Ferraro lost. Just really devastating. Mm-hmm. And I get that impulse. It's just so hard. It's, it's so hard to watch us. And I do not begrudge them that I would have done the same thing if I was right. living back then. But the problem is, is that then we think we normalize what happened. Right. And we forget right. that we were once a country that overwhelmingly was supporting equal rights. Mm-hmm. It's like it's so painful to talk about the losing that our young women don't even know. Yeah. They don't, like you were saying, they don't even know. And so even in these tough times, on whatever issue it is. When your side loses, there's a tendency to, like, it hurts so bad you withdraw. 
But that's exactly when you don't. If you want to make long-term change, that's exactly when you don't. Yeah. I mean, from Geraldine Burrow until 2016, there's no women in the ticket. Right, no. How is that possible? Right. That's weird. Right. That's not how things naturally evolve. But well, that is because people were just so hurt they went under. They kind of went underground. Right. And I empathize with it, but I'm telling you the lesson from that is, is right now, something doesn't go a certain way, do not retreat. I'm seeing that. Just stay involved. I mean, look at all the stay women involved. who are running for they office. Are. They are. And I will note that uh, the Republicans lost women incumbents. Oh, yeah. And in the midterms. So I think I am loving the response. And I want all women, I mean, I don't care what party. That's why Women Lead is a nonpartisan group, because it, to me it's about the numbers. I just want to normalize. I get that. I, because I do think that there's been a lot of cooperation between Republican women, Democratic women in Arkansas, and it's wonderful to see on lots of issues. I would like women who support our, you know, believe in women's equality. Sure. But I want to remind that the leadership for that was in the GOP originally. Those Republican women were a force. Yeah. Those Betty Ford women, they were a force to be reckoned with. Right. You know? Well, and again, to differentiate, it's different in the South. Right. It is. I mean, I was at um, it is. Rutgers with the Center for American Women in Politics, and there were these yeah. Republican legislators there. They all introduced themselves as pro-choice Republicans. And I was like, what? I didn't, even, I I didn't do. know those existed. And I also asked one of them, I said, well, what do you do when you're campaigning and people ask you who's watching your children? And she said, you mean voters? <laughs> yeah. She had no idea what I was talking about. Very different. And I said... Yeah, that's that actually that's what happens in the South. So it's just such a different place, and it's been very. Uh, it hard, is hard very, to adjust to being here. It's very, very, very different place. But like, I do think there's value in just a sheer volume of female legislators. But I do think that for progressive, you know, women candidates to take, you know, to take back this like family value mm-hmm. slogan, it doesn't have to belong. It doesn't belong to one party. Right. We can all be in support of family values. Right. However, we kind of define them, and we can and to to remember when those progressive women push about feminism that feminism is choice. Yeah. And to validate everyone's choices and to honor those and to talk about clearing obstacles to them for everybody, no matter what they choose. And that, instead of pitting, like, working women against stay-at-home moms, like, that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, not even, that's not even honest or fair whatsoever, Yeah, you know. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up because I, I know you need to get back. I do. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I mean, your work is incredible. I'm thank so glad you. that we have you in Arkansas and the country. I mean, really, but, yeah, so uh, there's a lot more to talk about. And I really look forward to your Phyllis Schlafly examination. Yeah. I mean, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the that some other time. The deeper roots of anti-feminism in America. Yes, yeah. I'm very, mm-hmm. very curious about that. And and you'll be looking at it from a, uh, a broader perspective, not just Southern? Correct. Or, okay, yeah. I'm, I will. I cannot wait. So, well, I hope you have a great time tonight. And thank, thank you for nominating Diane Blair. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, so it's... I mean, that's part of, like, telling these stories, yeah. appreciating right. all that women like Diane Blair were, from mothers all the way to fighting for other mothers right. to fighting for... Like, it's the whole package. Yeah. And, you know, we have to, women have to lift each other up. All of us. Yeah. We just have to. Yes. Well, I like um, watching you raising your little feminist on, <laughs> on Facebook. So, uh, she is a doll. She's a piece of work. And she Thank is your, you. she is your blonde clone. Oh, she you is, think so? Oh my God, she looks exactly so like. blonde. It's hard to reconcile. Oh, it's the eyes. It's her face. It's everything. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I'm going to get in trouble if I do not ask you to subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends, rate us and review us. It is not hard to do. Of course, we prefer five stars, but do whatever you feel is right. And the more support you provide, the more we can keep on going. Thank you.